Tonight as we continue in this series, Simply the Savior, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount and here in the Beatitudes, I want to really strongly encourage you that as you look at these characteristics, these things that we as the body of Christ are supposed to be, and yet are such contrasts, so much divine paradox, that each one really adds to the last. And then they're all taken cumulatively together. And so I want to take us back to the very beginning of chapter 5. Tonight we'll be in verse 5. But verse 1 in chapter 5 says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up onto a mountain, and he was seated with his disciples, and they came to him. And so this beautiful, intimate picture. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus continues to speak these things, and and you can well imagine in the hearing of those who were there that day, they might have been waiting for what's next, what is going to come next, what next will fall upon our ears. Like the first two Beatitudes, this one has to have been somewhat shocking and perplexing because even in our world, and it was true then, meekness is almost always equated in the world sense with weakness. Meekness is one of those things that our world does not really value. And in fact, if someone is said to be meek, it's almost as if you had paid them a great disservice. That means that they're probably not going to make much of themselves. And if you go to talk to them, they probably won't have much to say. If you ask them for their opinion on something, you likely won't get it because they won't have any ideas of their own. But meekness is one of those characteristics that is so amazingly wonderful and yet so very, very difficult to come by. Because ultimately it boils down to the ultimate power, the ultimate authority under absolute control of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was and will always continue to be the most meek person who ever walked the face of the earth. And yet Jesus was, from day one, from the cradle, Jesus was God. The same God that created the heavens. The same God that spoke into existence the universe as we know it. The same God who looked upon the void and lifeless form of our planet and spoke life into existence. That's the kind of raw power that we can't even actually understand because no human being has ever possessed it. And yet it was that power that stood before Pilate and answered not to the accusations against him. It was that power that stood in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And as he stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he looked at Judas Iscariot and he said, Judas, are you going to betray me with a kiss? He could have removed Judas from the planet instantaneously. He could have called down a legion of angels. He could have prevented his own arrest. He certainly could have prevented his death. He could have done anything he wanted to do. And yet, what does he cry out from the cross less than 24 hours later? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Tonight, happy is the spirit-controlled person. Let's pray. Lord God, we have come, and it's been one of those days, Lord, where we've seen your hand, we've listened to your voice, we've heard the cries of your people, we've gathered together in fellowship and in worship. And Lord, tonight we simply want to settle down and settle in and gather around and allow you to speak, Lord, into our lives this monumental truth, Lord, that we would be absolutely blessed and literally inherit the earth by keeping ourselves spirit-controlled. Lord, ultimate power in us under control. We pray that you'd bless us as we speak, bless us as we hear, that your spirit would reign in this place. Lord, we ask you to bind the work of the enemy. Would our hearts be inclined to heaven? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people all said, Amen. You see, Jesus' audience knew exactly what they were looking for in a Messiah. And it's very understandable, and it is important for us to understand what they would have been thinking. Because as Jesus said these things, the Jewish people, and this audience was largely Jewish, There were no doubt some Gentiles in the crowd, but it was largely Jewish. And the Jewish people had been for about 1,500 years looking for Messiah. They had understood that one day there would be one who would be called Elijah who is to come. A prophet who would be greater than Moses. There would be a great deliverer. And that great deliverer would set the Jewish people free. And so from a Hebrew perspective, when he said these things, this is like an anathema to their thought process. This is the antithesis. It's the opposite of what they're thinking. Blessed are the meek. How about blessed are the almighty and the all-powerful who can walk right into Rome and deal with Caesar? That would be blessed. That's what they were thinking. And to some degree, that's somehow uh, a little bit the way our world works today. We idolize people with power. You know, we have crazy shows like Shark Tank and, you know, all these things where, you know, somebody is exerting their authority or their power over somebody else. All of the survivor shows where, you know, the meek not only don't inherit the coveted, you know, silver banana or whatever it is they get now, I don't know. But they're, you know, they're cast out of the village. The person who can't provide. And, you know, as we, as we look at people who humbly take a back seat and say, you know, how can I serve you? We look at those people as losers. It's exactly what the Jewish people were thinking. 
They thought they'd take their rightful position. They had kind of come to understand that maybe this guy's the Messiah. It's possible. What's he going to say next? What's he going to do next? How's he going to act? Is he going to go pay Pilate a visit and deal with him once and for all? And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. Are you kidding me? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. It's like a one-string violin. What kind of song can you play on that? Doesn't sound like a recipe for success. They had anticipated the great coming of the Messiah. And, and see, Jesus was, was counterintuitive for them. They were expecting a harsh dealing with Rome. They were expecting this powerful guy to come on the scene, and any, anybody that spoke up, he would absolutely just put them to waste with his very breath of his mouth. And it would be completely the opposite as Jesus began to speak. I want to give you three little stories to illustrate this point. And first is from a very famous violinist. For those of you that don't know such thing, I think most of you do, the violin is a four-stringed instrument. Amen? It doesn't have a whole lot of strength. Not a lot of room for error on a violin. And as you begin to play a violin, you realize exactly how hard it is to play a four-stringed instrument. It's extremely difficult. And so when you hear someone who's a virtuoso on that particular instrument you know, as we're playing guitar, we can kind of hit several strings all at once, and they kind of sort of sound good. But a violin, generally, the strings are played one at a time. The great Niccolo Paganini, as he was playing a very, very famous piece, he's playing in Europe, and he begins to play this piece, and he's before a standing crowd that's just raving at his handling of this marvelous piece. As he's playing, first one string breaks. And he keeps playing like there is absolutely nothing wrong. Nobody can tell the difference. He continues to play the piece flawlessly. He simply plays the notes in different places on the fretboard. Nobody even can tell that he only has now a three-stringed violin. A short while later, he snaps another string. He's now down to two strings. He continues to play. Now he's locating multiple notes on the same string as he's fingering the strings and he's playing between them with the bow. And so as he moves his bow, he's able to actually finger a note between his fingers. And then finally, the worst thing that can happen if you happen to be a concert violinist, he breaks yet a third string. And if you know anything about strings they're made out of gut and they're actually can be cut by the horsehair that's on the bow and so now he has a single string he's got three limp strings dangling from his violin and he continues and finishes the piece on a single string standing ovation finally the applause dies down he begins to play another song with just the single string the audience, the conductor's like shaking his head. He's like, no, he's waving him off. It's like, no, we're not going to do that. He plays a whole nother song on a single string. When he's through, he holds up his violin and he says, 
Nicola Paganini and a single string. And the crowd goes absolutely crazy. You see, he was unaffected by his circumstance. He continued to play through his circumstance and realized that the greatness that was within him could come out if he gave that greatness a chance. And so he was quite content to play on a single string. I shared a little bit last Sunday about Dr. Viktor Frankl. Dr. Frankl was an Austrian neuroscientist. He was actually a neurologist. He was also a psychiatrist during the Second World War. And he was captured along with his entire family. He was imprisoned in Bergen-Belsen. He was in that prison camp for a little over two and a half years. And throughout the period of time of his imprisonment, not only was his every possession he had taken from his home in Vienna, his office closed, his entire family, one by one, he witnessed them go to the gas chambers and be killed. And as he was down to his last remaining family member, he, he said to himself, it, it just simply can't get any worse than this. And as he began to look at the circumstances of his life, that horrible experience came to full light when finally all of his family was gone and it was only him. He said this in his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. He said, there's sufficient proof that everything can be taken away from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms is to choose one's own attitude given any set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. And in the final analysis, it becomes clear that that sort of person, though a prisoner in a camp, is not the result of the prison, but of the person. It's internal. Fundamentally, Viktor Frankl also understood what it was like to play with one string. And the third story I would share with you to illustrate this point is the opposite. And it comes from a day and time that's close to my heart, the Vietnam War, from Major Harold F. Kushner. He was an Army medical officer. He was a doctor. He was held in a Viet Cong prison camp for five and a half years. Survived that incarceration. In the last two and a half years that he was there, there was a young officer that also was captured, brought into his camp, just 24 years old, completely of good health. And that officer had made a deal with the Viet Cong that he would give them information if he would be treated well. And for two years, they treated him well. And then it became very, very apparent that all of his good things, all the extra food, he actually had a mattress, he was not tortured every day like everyone else, that all of that had been a ruse and had been a lie to get information from him so that they could capture more Americans and torture them. And though he had the best cell 
and the best conditions and the best food within two months from that internal longing of soul, he withered away and died. You see, he didn't have that one string. These are all to illustrate a single thing. We can be filled with anger. We can be filled with self-pity. We can be filled with want. We can be filled with all the what-ifs of the world. And we can still play beautiful music. We, we can still continue to be used of the Lord in a wonderful, wonderful way. If you focus on the one string that you have instead of the three that you don't. Amen? You see, a person who's humble, a person who's meek, focuses on what you do have and not what you don't. It's an internal attitude of heart. You see, you and I wake up with choices every single day. And what Jesus is really saying to us tonight is, make the best of the choices that you have. Choose to live a spirit-led life. And so he says, blessed are the gentle, is another way to actually translate that word that is meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's a little difference between those words. And in fact, when you look at them, uh, the word that Jesus is use, uses in verse 5 is almost no different than the poor that's used in verse 3. They're very, very, very similar. They're complementary. And what it says is I have a complete and a total dependence, not on myself, not on my own power, not on my own abilities, not on the things that I possess, not on my possessions, not on my position, but I have a complete and utter and total dependence on the one string, and that's God. I hang on to Him. And no matter what comes my way, I put Christ at the center of everything. And so when we think of this principle, when we truly have that type of meekness, we have that type of gentleness, we have that type of humility, it leaves God in control of absolutely everything. And I believe part of the problem that we have in our, in our country is that we want to control everything ourselves. And so in trying to do that, we actually sometimes can change our situation through our own human effort. Sometimes by our own power we can do certain things. But ultimately then we have to support those things. We have to maintain those things. We have to continue that work that we're doing. And so we become, in essence, slaves to the things that we've created. And so what Jesus is saying is basically, look, why don't you let me control your circumstances, your situations? Why don't you let my power be your power? Instead of you trying to take things on yourself, why don't you let me take on your problems? Let me work in you and to you and through you. You see, a gentle person or a meek person is somebody that can endure almost anything. They can go through almost any trial, any pain. We think about meekness or we think about true humility is another way to look at it. You actually shouldn't be too terribly amazed at what you can do, but you should be very amazed at what God can do in you and to you and through you. That's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? He didn't say, I can do all things. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
why the prophet Zechariah, not by power and not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's the same principle. You see, what Jesus was talking about was exactly the problem that we have in our world, and that's we are so self-dependent that we are not dependent on God. And so we get prideful, and we get arrogant, and we get lifted up, we get boastful, and all of a sudden it's all about us. And by the way, there's no problem with someone taking a a measure of, of pride in the right way about achievements. But at the end of the day, the Lord can do it without you, can do it without me. If I didn't show up tonight, he causes pulpit to speak itself. We could have just a talking pulpit up here. It's like flexible aluminum. It has lips and everything. I don't know. God could do that. You see, the proper amount of medicine brings a raging fever under control, but too much of that medication will actually kill somebody. Amen? Too much power is the same way. Too much of self-reliance is the same way. You need some to get going. But if you overdose on you, if you're not trusting God, then ultimately that power kills you. It kills you physically. It can kill you spiritually. We, we call some of those people workaholics. Amen? I'm a recovering workaholic. So it's been eight minutes since I last worked. I, I have a tendency to want to do more rather than less. I have a tendency to want to trust sometimes in my own abilities. But it's the Lord that needs to work through us if we really want to have peace in the situations that we find ourselves in in life. You see, the proper amount of power is like a gentle breeze, amen? Think of it this way. Is there any difference between a hurricane-force wind and a gentle breeze that you know blows? If you've been to Hawaii, the, the trade winds blow. It's kind of similar to Lomita, actually, kind of, you know, we're, Laughing, we're saying, man, this is actually humid, kind of feels like Hawaii here. So we just kind of closed our eyes, and the traffic, we turned into waves somehow. (laughs) It's like, wow. But that gentle breeze, when it's pushed along a little bit faster, becomes something destructive. God wants to move us along at his pace. He wants to harness that power. Probably some of you have been around long enough to remember that, that old movie, Black Beauty. And you look at that amazing horse and you just go, man, how can something so beautiful also be so powerful? How can something that can stand so still be so powerful? That's very similar to the meekness of the Lord. The adjective that's used here, the, the Greek adjective is praus, and it means to be considerate and courteous and exercising self-control. So it's really talking about a spirit-controlled person. Now imagine if you were having the same power available to you, which you do, by the way, through the work of the Spirit in your life. Imagine that power working in you, now working out of you, controlled in a way that the Lord's actually working through your life. You see, we estimate ourselves by being poor in spirit, and now we actually are spirit-controlled by being gentle and meek. And so these things are added to each other. It's God's strength in us, and it's fully under control, because he's never going to abuse that power. As you might imagine, for those of you that are here this morning, I had some fairly interesting conversations after every service. 
fairly interesting conversations after every... I had some very, very, very heartfelt, pled out, you know, people just, wow, you know, well, what about this and what about that and all of these things and all of those things. And it would have been really easy to use the knowledge that I have of those circumstances and situations having been involved in this entrenched warfare really for the better part of a decade with regard to the marriage issue here in California, I could have just let it go. And it was interesting to see people's response as I would just simply be quiet and peaceable and say, well, you know, here's what God's word says about those things. You know, I didn't have a single person argue with me. Interesting conversations. They were heartfelt. But they weren't ballistic. Because those things that God had to say, He does not need to yell to everybody. That's why I have such an aversion to the Westboro Baptist Church gang. That's not of the Lord. To scream and yell and call people names and say that God doesn't love them. God loves absolutely everyone. If he can love me, he can love anyone. We, we need to see it that way, don't we? Amen? He doesn't need to scream and yell and shout and jump up and down. I mean, sometimes I do that because I'm just excited, but not because we need to beat people with the truth. We can speak the truth in love. We can have compassion and tenderness and gentleness and meekness and self-control. We can actually have the winning side of any situation in a sense of the, the knowledge of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord. And we can still communicate those things in such a way that the Lord gets the glory for it. It doesn't have to be punch him in the face. Jesus did not come punch Rome in the face. Matter of fact, he laid down his life. You talk about power under control. You see, as you control that power by the Spirit working in you, then you have that fruit of the Spirit, which is joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and all of those wonderful things are in Galatians 5. What Jesus is really declaring here is this. Blissful is the man who's only angry at the right time. Amen? Think about it. Because there's a time to be angry. God hates sin. It's okay to be angry with sin. But it's not okay to scream and yell at people who has every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control. Because God himself is always under control. If God were, Can you imagine if God woke up and had a bad day like we have bad days? You ever thought about that? And by the way, that is exactly who Allah is in Islam. He's very capable of being capricious, you can have good days and bad days. You can mete out your, you know, your good things and your bad things. And all of a sudden, whoops, you had a, mm, caught him on a bad day. God's not like that at all. He has always power under control. If not, our world would not be here. In the Garden of Eden, God would have gone, well, get me new people. Never saw that coming, but I know how to take care of it. That's what he would have done. But he's always under control. And gentleness really is a true view of yourself, isn't it? 
You see, when you think about someone who's meek, or you think about somebody that's gentle, it's to actually have the right view of who you are. And if you have the right view of who you are, then you always have a better chance of having the correct view of other people. If you don't get that you are a sinner saved by grace, then you will hold other people to an account that they cannot hold and neither can you. But when you realize that you are a sinner saved by grace, that you need the grace of God, I need the grace of God, that every day when I wake up, God's mercy is new every morning for me, not just the other people, that I need Him to be kind to me, not just everybody else, that I need Him to love on me, not just everybody else. When I have the right view of me, I get really, really meek about everyone else. Because I realize, but for God's grace, go I. You see, the practice of a person who's like that, keeping your eye on yourself and not so much on others, is exactly why Jesus said, judge not, lest by the same measure you also shall be judged. He isn't actually saying don't judge at all. He's saying make sure you use the right measuring stick. And the right measuring stick is his word, his character, his nature, his gentleness, his meekness, his self-control, my own need for mercy and grace, his love and my... You see, when I measure other people that way, my stick gets really short. It's like, whoop, you made it. Why? Because I have a correct view of me. I see me for who I am. And so Jesus is saying, look, be meek. See things correctly. It's actually the reason, the practical application of this truth. Uh, We might say is congratulations to the meek. They're easygoing, they're calm. They're persons who are not impetuous, are not frequently angry. They don't have outbursts of wrath. They're nice, casual folks to be around. How many of you have a... Don't show your hands now that I think about it. How many of you have a relative that you hope never comes to another family function? Yeah, I knew it. I think we all have at least one relative that comes and the whole time they're there, the entire event is about them. It's either their sicknesses or their stuff going on at work or their relationships or something. They suck the air out of the room, right? Because they never stop talking. Kind of like pastors. They never stop talking. And it's always about them. Well, I'm going through this and I'm having this test. And no one wants to hear about their colonoscopy or whatever, you know? You know what I'm saying? And they just go on and on and on. And it's not only too much information, it's too much information on steroids because it's all about them. And after a while, you're just going, could we talk about Armageddon or something? It'd be more peaceful. It's because they're self-focused. And no one else matters. Jesus said it this way. He said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, there in Mark 10, and to give his life a ransom 
for many, for those who would believe. He says, look, I'm the sacrifice. I'll give myself up. You see, he's the type of guy that I picture like this. Though Jesus is speaking this amazing sermon on the mount, you can almost see him taking a pause between each one of the Beatitudes and kind of looking out at the disciples and the crowd, waiting for them to say something. He would have been a good listener. Paul would translate it this way for us in Galatians 5, I say to you, walk by the Spirit. You won't carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these things are in opposition one to another, so that you may not do the things that you actually want to do or please to do. New Living Translation says, But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The deeds of the flesh are actually quite evident. Or immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. He goes on this long list. And I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you in times past, that those who practice such things mm, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, that, that's not my meekness. That's not who I am. That's not the way I want you to conduct yourselves in this world. And then he goes on to say, walk in the Spirit. And he, he lists those fruits, those wonderful things that begin with love, that greatest of all the characteristics. And so we might do a little inventory tonight. What's your attitude towards your circumstances? Do you look at life as though you have three busted strings or that you have one really good one? It's the same violin, isn't it? You see, most people look at life through the things that they don't have, not through what they do have. And so they begin to get prideful and lifted up and overly concerned with what others have. How do you act when you have God's power at your disposal? When you happen to be able to command the situation, do you use it with his meekness or gentleness, or do you beat people up? I've had some interesting conversations as a Bible college teacher, and I've had some interesting conversations uh, at some conferences with people who you know, have some other theological bent than do I. And it's always amazing to me how many people who have some other theological bent believe that if they beat you to death with it, that somehow they've won. Just flog you endlessly. Well, you know, John Calvin said this. Well, great. He's not God. And he didn't author the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit did, and the Holy Spirit didn't say that. Good old John did. By the way, I've read the Institutes of Christian Religion. I know exactly what they say. I think Mr. Calvin would disagree with you, actually. Because I don't think he'd be beating me up with it. How's your attitude towards division in the body of Christ? Sometimes we're, we're so bent on being right that we forget that we need to be righteous. Amen? Those two things are not synonymous, by the way. Being right means you have the facts correct, and being righteous means that you did them correctly in the eyes of God. You took the facts and you gave them to someone in a way that they could be used for God's good in their life. So many things that we, we could look at. How do you handle things like rejection? How do you relate to others? Do you relate to others with that power that you have in Christ under control? Or do you always try to win?
You see, God's working all things together for our good. And God is too kind and too good to simply be boastful and proud and arrogant. Though he'd have every right to be arrogant with me. I mean, what's, what am I? I'm his creation. And so he says, be meek. So when we know who, we have the answer to what. We have the answer to why. And Jesus is that example. He's that wonderful example of gentleness, meekness. And it says that ultimately that person, here's the promise, will inherit the earth. It's not the inheritance that's given upon your death to someone who's a testator of a will. The thought is quite a bit looking forward to that. It's eschatological in that sense. It's looking towards the last days. In other words, God's family, because of that power under control in us, actually will inherit this earth. The one that we're spinning around on at 22,000 miles an hour right now. It's going to be yours. Matter of fact, so much that you're going to be priests and kings. You're going to rule and reign with Christ in righteousness for a thousand years. You're actually going to inherit this earth one day. And by the way, that's going to be God's pure unmerited grace. It's not going to be any good thing that you've done. Why would God do that? What does it mean? Here's an interesting thing. We often forget it. You know, originally man was created sinless. Amen? Adam and Eve, there was a point in time, didn't last very long, like three minutes or something in the Garden of Eden. We don't know. But there, when they were created, God created them perfectly in the image of God. Amen? They were perfect and they were eternal. So God's original plan was that all of this belonged to Adam and Eve. And in fact, so much so that he said to them, it's yours, be good stewards of it. And he gave the earth to Adam and he said, now tend it. Take care of it. It's still actually mine, but I'm giving it to you as my kids. So what the Lord is actually saying is if you live his way here and now, he's actually going to reverse that curse and let you be part of the way things were supposed to be originally by giving you what was promised originally to Adam and Eve, which is this earth. Amen? You know, sometimes we forget that God wants to dwell with us. He wants to walk with us. He enjoys fellowship with us. He was heartbroken. Remember that the book of Genesis plainly declares that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Can you imagine taking a stroll with the Lord? Yeah, I made those, made those, made those. Oh, that trout over there, that's 714 pounds. And just ask it. It'll get out and come talk to you. I don't know how the Garden of Eden was, but I know this. We were supposed to inherit the perfection of God's creation. And so he says, if you're meek, if you're humble, if you keep that power that you now have in you, because Christ dwells in you, amen? It's your hope of glory, if you don't know that. Christ in you is the hope of glory. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Christ is dwelling in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll get to inherit this wonderful earth that he had Created. Matter of fact, when we get to Revelation 21, 
The most complete fulfillment of this exact promise is reserved for the future when Christ returns. A rejuvenated universe. Can you imagine when he rolls up the heavens like a scroll? I mean, the ones we have now are pretty awesome, amen? I've I, I got to admit, I'm a Hubble telescope junkie. I look at those photos. That nebula is 15 trillion miles wide. I don't know how far that is, but it's further than it is from here to Lamita. It's a long ways. And you look at that, and you, you see the vast expanses of space and what God created. You, you go to the high Sierras, and Pastor Rob's on his way up there right now. Stare at that night sky and look up, and you can see the Milky Way. And you go, man, God, you created this perfect, and your desire is that we would enjoy this the way you first intended. I want that inheritance. And the Lord tells us that the way to find that inheritance is to be meek, to be humble. You see, sometimes we can just simply bemoan the things that we don't have. It's easy to do, and there's actually, in some ways, I think the Lord fully understands when we have had difficult things happen in our life. Many of you know Johnny Erickson Tata, beautiful young lady, makes what seems like an innocent mistake, dives into some water that's not deep enough, hits her head on a rock, and she's paralyzed for the rest of her life. You could take that moment of impact, you could take that loss of feeling, and you could say, God, what are you doing? Why would you allow this? Or you could do what's happened in her life which is to trust God with your eternity because this life is a vapor and then heaven. She was never going to ride horses again. There's a pretty amazing job of painting. She couldn't even cry for herself initially. She'd have teardrops put in her eyes so that her eyes wouldn't dry out because she no longer had tears. That's a pretty rough deal. But the meek, the humble, are going to inherit everything that people without Christ think is theirs. You see, we look at the the rich and the famous. We look at the powerful, and we say, man, if I just had that. Brothers and sisters, everything on this earth belongs to our Heavenly Father and He has promised to give it to you for living the way He wants you to live. That's part of the reward. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful God, for your promises. And Lord, we just think of these things and that's almost too much for us. Lord, that somehow humility and gentleness and meekness and keeping ourselves under the control of your spirit, that that would bring forth a special kind of preciousness in our lives that ultimately would result in us inheriting 
the glory and the grandeur of the new heaven, the new earth, this earth during the millennial reign. God, it's too much for us. But it's what your word says. It's a promise for us as your kids. We're so grateful that you didn't come and beat up Rome. (laughs) God, we're so grateful that you didn't kill all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. Lord, you were patient and gentle and kind. And Lord, when Thomas doubted, you told him it'd be okay. See here the scar on my side. And when Peter failed you, not once, not twice, but three times, you restored him three times. God, when we think on what you did to those who were around you that day and how you loved them to the uttermost, to the very end, or we think about the people who hated you and what you said to them, you said to them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lord, thanks for showing us what it means to be humble and meek and gentle and caring and loving. God, make us as your people exactly like that. Lord, we're grateful for the way that you take care of us. We're thankful for your work in our lives. Lord, mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. God's people all said, Amen. Why don't you stand? If you need prayer, we'll have some guys up front to pray after service. We're going to worship. When you get done worshiping, you can go home and as you're driving home, look up at the sky and check out your inheritance. Amen.